Are you planning on a trip to the Yukon? You can get a lot of possibly outdated info on the World Wide Web. But if you want the best advice, you need to talk to a local, like Trinda at the Visitor Information Center in Beaver Creek, or Dana in Haines Junction, or Kirsten in Dawson City. I'm Greg Correas, publisher of Yukon North Ordinary and the Yukon Traveler. Take it from me. I've been delivering magazines throughout the territory for the past 30 years, and the staff at the Yukon Visitor Information Centers have all the inside information. They'll help you find the destination of your dreams. Go to www.travelyukon.com slash better hyphen day. Here's stories about people having a rope from the cabin to the outhouse uh, so you don't get lost. And until I was in that windstorm on Herschel, I, I would have thought, yeah, you know, that's not going to happen. Well, the outhouse was only, oh, maybe 25 yards away from the uh, cabin and you couldn't see it. This is Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. We share a more in-depth take on the most popular stories from our print magazine, showcasing the territory's extraordinary people, culture, and outdoors. I'm your host, Karen McCall. Imagine being paid to work outside in the remote wilderness in some of the most beautiful places in the Yukon. Dave Bakicha has been doing that his whole career. The conservation officer with the Yukon Department of Environment is set to retire after more than 30 years on the job. Heather Avery took the opportunity to sit down with him and ask about his work, fondest memories, and stories from out on the land. Heather knows Dave has lots of good tales. As a former journalist and communications analyst at the Department of Environment, she's interviewed him many times. She wrote about some of Dave's stories for the summer issue of Yukon North of Ordinary magazine, and now you get to hear them straight from the horse's mouth. By the way, Dave is affectionately known by his colleagues as the conversation officer, as often the one put forward to speak to the media about wildlife conflict situations. So I split this interview into two episodes. Here's part one of Heather's conversation with Dave. So we'll get to the exciting stuff in just a minute, but uh, let's talk about what a conservation officer does. So how would you explain your job? That's very interesting. Yeah, I I get asked that question quite regularly, and I get a blank. I draw a blank, and I look back at people with this blank look, and I'm sure they think we do absolutely nothing but drive snowmobiles and boats and fly around in helicopters and drive trucks. Um, Really, our, our job description is... Public safety, number one. So we deal with uh, issues with problem wildlife, those types of things, uh, conflicts between people and, and wildlife and animals. Uh, also, we deal with, uh, obviously, we do enforcement, uh, resource, natural resource protection and enforcement. That's probably the second uh, on the list of priorities. And then, really, you name it after that, uh, it, it opens up so wide and so broad. Anything to do with the Wildlife Act as far as uh, what we do with uh, our licensing of people, I, the list goes on and yeah, on and yeah, on. Yeah, it's, it's a long, it's a long <laughs> list. Like I said, that's why I kind of get that blank look when people first ask. Right. I, as I go, as I keep talking, I keep coming up with more things that we do. So you mentioned patrols. Uh, why don't we talk about patrols and, and and where you go patrolling and what the best days on the job patrolling are? Uh, out in a boat in good weather on any of the southern lakes in the southern part of the Yukon Territory. Um, as far as winter patrols, I mean, probably the the highlight of any winter patrolling is uh, uh, a trip to Herschel Island. 
Uh, I've gone there. I've gone to Herschel Island two different ways by snowmobile on two different occasions. And Herschel Island, for those that don't know, is uh, uh, off the uh, on the Arctic coast. So you're on the Arctic Ocean, above the Arctic Circle, on the Arctic Ocean. And we leave uh, the one trip we left from Aklavik in the Northwest Territories went down the Mackenzie River to the Delta and then along the Arctic Ocean to Herschel Island along the North Coast. Uh, four-day patrol that one was and then the more recent one that I've done we actually went from Old Crow so we flew into Old Crow and then we snowmobiled from Old Crow over the uh, Windy Pass and down onto the Babbage River and then out to the Arctic coast and then along the Arctic coast to Herschel Island that way and then in reverse coming back and we went through the the, uh, Old Crow Flats as well on the way. So what are you seeing when you're out on those patrols, and what are you doing? Uh, we're seeing, well, we're seeing a few people, a few trappers out there, and there were a few people out harvesting caribou on the uh, North Slope. And in the spring, this was spring, it doesn't feel like spring when you're there, but it's in uh, right at the beginning of April. Um, and, of course, it's not above zero at all, um, probably about minus 12 to minus 15. And... Uh, in the sunshine, sometimes during the day, it'll get up to minus eight. And we're seeing people out uh, looking for uh, muskox and out looking for uh, uh, grizzly bears. The grizzly bears come out. And, and some out after polar bears. These are people that are harvesting uh, under the North Slope Agreement from the Northwest Territories. So we're keeping an eye on that. Uh, it's actually, I guess relatively fairly active up there. There's uh, quite a few hunters that come along the coast that time of year because, of course, it's so cold and so dark the rest of the year, they, uh, and it's easier to travel in the winter than in the summer. So what's it, what's it like? Can you describe the feeling when, when you're out on patrol way up north in the middle of nowhere? You kind of take a look around and realize, you know, you probably really are in about as isolated place as you can be. I suppose if we got out on the Arctic ice and went towards the North Pole a little further, we'd be a little more isolated and a little more barren. But you're, you're kind of on your own out there for sure. Um, we always bring extra gear and extra equipment uh, in case we break something breaks down. Really, you're, it's up to you. you. You fix it or you fo- phone for a helicopter, one or the other. We do have that luxury now. We have sat phones and in-reaches and those handy kind of things. But when I first started, we uh, SBX-11 and the uh, 8 o'clock sked with uh, Don Taylor uh, uh, out of... Uh, uh, can't remember the name of the lake now, but it used to be uh, that used to be the only way we could contact people when we were out on the land. So, can you take us there? What's it look like when you're when you're out there on the North Slope? Yeah. Oh, I don't know how to describe it. You have to kind of see it. I mean, there's uh, right on the coast. Uh, you've, you, of course, you've got the ice out beside you. Uh, when you're heading to Herschel, we, we're always coming from the east. So on your right, you've got the ice. Um, and then there's leads that are open with uh, sometimes with jumble ice and stuff in them. And then uh, often you have to drive right along the edge of the coast itself on overland because it's just so rough to get out on the ice. Um, there are times when you can get on the ice and it's smooth. And then on your left, you've got a, an immediate embankment, uh, probably 35 feet high or so. And then once you get on top of that embankment, there's places where it's uh, eroded or where some creeks and rivulets come through and you can get up on top. Once you're up on top of that, then it's, 
it's a flat, open, rolling slope. And then off in the distance, you can see mountains. Uh, I believe it's the British mountains in that area. Not quite sure, to be honest with you. And you can look off towards the Firth River and uh, see the delta and that stuff. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. And it can be a very rough ride. Uh, snowmobiling in that country. It's not like here, the powder snow. The snow's literally like concrete in that part of the world. You can bang along. And uh, the wind can sure howl. Um, you almost always have to count on at least one day, uh, a weather day. We had a day and a half of wind the second trip we went, and we thought the cabin was going to literally blow away. And we have had cabins blow off their uh, footings and out onto the Arctic ice and the Arctic Ocean. That's how hard the wind blows up there. What happens when you, when that happens? Where, where you well, you hope that you're not in the cabin at the time that it blows away. Uh, it, we had, uh, the, when we were there and it was really windy, we were actually on Herschel Island. So we were on some of the bigger, in some of the bigger structures that have been there for, ooh, I would think 100 years plus now because they were original buildings and structures from when it was a, a whaling post. And they haven't blown away uh, yet. So I, I think we're okay. But we did have a cabin at Shingle Point that blew away, uh, and it, it was a much lighter structure than those ones. But um, there were times when it, it felt like it almost would. And, I, you know, until I was there, you hear the stories about people having a rope from the cabin to the outhouse uh, so you don't get lost. And until I was in that windstorm on Herschel, I, I would have thought, yeah, you know, that's not going to happen. Well, the outhouse was only... Oh, maybe 25 yards away from the uh, cabin, and you couldn't see it. So it it could you could have gotten lost and disoriented and turned around. So it would have been it would have been a good idea to have, or it was a good idea to have a uh, a rope between the cabin door and the outhouse. I know you've got lots of strange and interesting stories from the field. Uh, I'm thinking about one in particular about putting up signs at the Yukon BC border. Yeah, we were, this is other duties, other related duties. We, uh, we had a, a number of circumstances where uh, we suspected uh, BC hunters were hunting right along the border of BC Yukon. And uh, there were, there were, we weren't sure whether they didn't know where the border was or whether they were kind of just pushing the border a little bit. So we, what we ended up doing was uh, putting up signs right along the border. And uh, one of the signs we put up, we got all organized in, of course, we have to do this by helicopter because it's, uh, it's sheep hunters and they're up on sides of mountains and things. So we got all organized with our helicopter and our sign and our posts and our post pounders and our nuts and bolts and all these things for the signs to put them up. Loaded it all in, went out there and uh, pounded the post in and got ready to bolt the sign to the post and there were no holes in the sign for the bolts to go through. So we were kind of scratching our heads, and helicopters at the time were about $1,700 an hour, and we were about an hour either way, so double that uh, for cost to get out there. And we didn't have a drill, and we didn't have anything to put a hole in the sign with, so we were looking at this, trying to figure out what we were going to do. It was myself and another officer. And uh, I ended up looking as he was standing there scratching his head, and I was looking at his pistol. And I said, let's see the end of your pistol. And he, we looked at it and we said, you know, that's about the size of a bolt. Let's try it. So we ended up putting, propping the sign up 
uh, against some bushes and got a, a good angle so we weren't going to get any shrapnel from the, uh, from the round if we shot it at the sign. And we shot a hole in the sign. So we pulled the sign up, looked at it. Yep, the bolt fit perfectly. So now the, now the trick was to shoot another hole in the sign at exactly the right spot so that it would fit the bolt holes. And sure enough, we, we took a felt pen and we marked exactly where we wanted to shoot and we backed up. And I, I wasn't the shooter, was the, was the other officer that shot. And he shot a, hole, a second hole in it and it worked out perfectly. It lined up perfectly. So we, we were using our... Uh, using our heads, I guess, for uh, figuring out what we we're going to do to drill holes in a sign. And uh, normally we would charge people for shooting holes in signs that, uh, that we put up for wildlife purposes. That's a violation normally. In this case, we, uh, we decided not to charge each other for it. Okay, so let's talk about bears now. So, because as a CEO, I know that you spend a lot of time dealing with bears. What's the scariest story you've had with a bear? was when I was based in Ross River and we were the feral mine had shut down and the uh it that actually ended up reducing the amount of uh, garbage and things going into the feral dump and as a result the bears started there was a bunch of bears that had gotten uh habituated to the dump and used to going to the dump all the time so those uh, those bears moved into town and started looking for uh, food sources in town garbage uh, any other, other number of things that they could find in and around town. So we were we spent about uh, oh probably two months snaring and relocating bears out of out of Farrell. And there was this one particularly large bear that was running around town, and uh, it it was kind of interesting in Farrell at the time. Lots of people had dogs, and you would get a report of a bear in an area. You drive near that area, and if you didn't see the bear, because of course. Most of this is happening at night. They're running around nocturnal. Um, not that it was super dark, summertime. And you'd open the door to your truck and you'd listen for where the dogs were barking and that would tell you where the bear had gone. So I heard dogs barking down on the lower bench. So I started going down to the lower bench and I was driving right past the RCMP station. And uh, just the way the station is with their compound in the back, there's a, there's a space behind the, uh, the building that is a... Uh, fenced or has a a structure on three sides and I saw a grizzly bear this large male grizzly bear run into that space and I drove down the road and in essence blocked that space with my truck as I was driving down the road and I stopped and I'm looking out my window to the side and this bear realizes he's cornered he spins around and he comes running straight from the door of my truck and I, I was too surprised at the time to be scared. Um, then he ran, just as he was coming to the side of the truck, he veered just a little bit and went around the front of the truck. And as he went by the front of the truck, I distinctly remember seeing his hump being higher than the hood of my truck as he went by. And then, boom, gone and into the bush. And that's when I got scared, because I realized the only thing between me and that bear was the, you know, I in for bear circumstance relatively thin little piece of glass that is in the door of my truck and that was all it was between me and that bear if he decided that he was going to come right through the door so that was it that curled my toes at that point time for a short break we'll be right back do you have a yukon north of ordinary hoodie yet what about a t-shirt a toque 
mug. Check out the full product line at the retail store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street across from City Hall. Limited products can also be ordered from northofordinary.com. And while you're there, don't forget to pick up a magazine subscription. And now, back to the episode. We also hear a lot about winter bears and how dangerous they are. I would imagine that's especially dangerous for trappers. Yeah, we've seemed to have had a circumstance in the last couple of years where there's, well, a couple, I guess probably the last 10 years, where uh, we seem to have a little bit more of that going on. Um, bears that come out in the winter, I mean, typically there's no good reason for them to be out in the winter. They're, they've, uh, they've evolved to, to, in essence, hibernate. It's not quite hibernation in the case of bears, but to spend the winter sleeping. And if they aren't in good enough condition or in good enough health or too old or injured or, uh, really just not in good enough health to continue sleeping, they will come out in the winter. And that We've known this for years. It just doesn't happen very often. It seems to be happening a little bit more. Uh, we had a circumstance last winter uh, where a bear was out in the area around Brayburn, and uh, it uh, it ended up finding, um, of course, trappers are out. It found some trappers' traps that, are, of course, are baited, and uh, baited with things that carnivores want to eat. And... Uh, the bear started going along and raiding all of these traps and then ended up at the trapper's cabin. It just followed the trail to the cabin. The trapper showed up in the dark um, at the cabin at about 8 o'clock at night with a snow machine that the headlight didn't work and uh, just sort of had a headlamp on. And when she showed up, uh, the bear was literally right there. She didn't actually see it, but she must have been within 20 meters of this bear in the dark took her a little while to realize she couldn't understand why there were people checking on her traps and there were people footprints on the, on her snowmobile trail. And then finally she clued in that it was in fact a bear when she saw that her shed was ripped open and part of her cabin had been damaged. So she thankfully spun around right away, came back out. And then the next day, two of our officers went in with her on the ground and uh, I ended up going out in the helicopter because we... Uh, a bear, once they break into structures and cabins, really, I mean, that bear, especially in January, that bear's not going to, uh, that, that bear's not going to climb back into a den. It's just going to carry on and uh, move further down the trail uh, to Braeburn. So we ended up going, the two officers were on the ground, went in with her and a couple of her friends, and they found all the damage and everything, and, and they thought the bear was still in the immediate area. We circled the area with the helicopter a couple of times and didn't see it, but we'd seen tracks coming down the trail. Couldn't tell which way they were going from the air, and we couldn't land. So they went up the trail. We landed, we landed in, in another location, and we, they snowmobiled to us and talked to us. They went up the trail to see what the tracks were doing. And they said, no, those tracks were all coming towards the cabin. So where we'd been circling around them, uh, there was a little bit of an opening, and when we lifted off the second time, in that opening we saw bear tracks. And there, so that bear had been within, within about 80 meters of the group of five of them on the ground. So again, you know, clearly not, not very afraid of people. Plus, we were circling with the helicopter, and the bear didn't leave. So we circled around, and once we got on the tracks, we managed to find the bear, and we, we actually did track it from the air, and I ended up shooting that bear. And it was a very, 
it was in very poor condition. It was a large male grizzly that, you know, just literally ran out of gas. He, uh, he didn't, he wasn't going to make it another winter, that's for sure. And uh, I suspect probably he knew that there was the uh, bison hunters in the area, so there might be some gut piles or something that might, uh, might help him out and get him through the winter. And then, of course, also the trapper in the area. So um, trappers, like I said, they always have some bait out. Uh, usually not enough to be a meal or do anything for the bear, but at that point they're starving and they're going to take whatever they can get. Can you describe what these old bears look like when, when, when you... Uh... Well, this one actually was in really tough shape. He, I, I've never seen it before, but he, uh, he, of course, had stuck his head in a bunch of different traps. Uh, and some of those traps are uh, 330 Conan Bear trap. Well, uh, we have had actually a couple of circumstances where traps had been forgotten and they've actually killed bears. So they're, they're a pretty serious trap uh, if the bear sticks its head in it. So he had some pretty big scars on his noggin from uh, fresh ones, from them getting out of those traps. But uh, he'd lost all the hair off his lower legs. And uh, our vets sent out samples to see if there was any other disease or anything. But um, he, they're not really designed to be out in that temperature. So he's running through the snow, um, and the snow is balling up on uh, on the hair and it actually pulls off and it actually yanks the hair out so this this poor old fellow was going along through the snow with in essence bare legs uh his back legs from just below his rump all the way down to his heel were uh, were hairless the fronts weren't as bad and then on his front leg uh, sorry the fronts of his front part of his back legs and his front legs, the same thing, down the backs of the legs. All the hair was pulled out. So he was running around at minus 25 uh, without his pajamas on, I guess. So you might want to put it that way. Without any hair, anyway. Um, and his, uh, his teeth were hugely worn. And he was, he was just a skinny bear. There, he was a bag of bones. Um, he, he did not have any fat on him, and he was, he was starting to digest his muscle. I mean, he was just, he was in rough shape. He wasn't going to make it. And he was, he, was on a, he was desperate to do whatever he could do to, to make it through. I know you've got uh, lots of stories about moose, too. Do you want to tell us about the time when you had to taser a moose? Yeah, sure. That was... That was definitely a highlight as well. That was pretty interesting. Um, trappers set up, uh, in many cases, they'll set up a bait site and then have a bunch of snares around the site. And interestingly, we've, we've seen it a fair amount, actually. The, the moose that are going by these sites, you would think a, a moose wouldn't want to go anywhere near anything in many cases they bait it with uh, roadkill dead moose or uh, some roadkill caribou or whatever they can find to bait this is the trappers um moose are curious they want to go and see what what that is and we've had moose walk in on these sites where you wouldn't think they would go you wouldn't think they would want to be in there um anyway trapper down around the rancheria area um, uh, had a moose go into a site and get caught on the bottom jaw, got a snare around its bottom jaw and a snare around one of its front legs. And the trapper happened to have a sat phone. Uh, it was on a weekend and he phoned me at home in, in Teslin and said he's got this moose in a snare. Um, what can we do about it? 
And I happened to know that the one of the Mounties in uh, Teslin at the time had been in Pharaoh, and that was the other occasion that I'm aware of where they tasered a moose, and that Mountie was involved with that. So I gave him a call and said, uh, are you up for trying to taser a moose again? And he's, sure. He was keen to do whatever. So uh, away we went. We told the trapper to hold off and just uh, not not rile the moose up, uh, leave it alone. So the trapper went back to his cabin, and we said, we'll meet you there in about an hour and a half. So that's how long it would take us to get there and get organized. So out we go. Sure enough, we get to the site, and here's a moose caught in snare. Um, it was Rancheria country's got really deep snow, so it was almost chest deep. It was just, just between my belly button and my chest in depth, and it's powder snow. And this moose is standing in the middle of this bait site. So we march in there thinking, okay, yep, no problem, let's sort this out. And it was the trapper and the trapper's son were there, so there was four of us total. Myself, the Mountie, the trapper, and the trapper's son. So we're kind of looking at this, and it wasn't a, wasn't a really big moose. It was a cow moose, probably a three-year-old. It didn't have a calf with it. Um, so we're looking at this moose. And, I mean, even, even a cow moose, three-year-old cow moose is pretty big. They're, they're designed to stomp on wolves and defend themselves that way. So I was thinking, well, how are we going to do this? So we walked in just to size it up, and I figured we could probably go in and, and taser the moose and then uh, cut... Uh, cut the snares off while it was immobilized, being tasered. But we figured, well, okay, we better have the uh, we better have somebody here with a rifle ready to in case things go wrong because we don't want to get stomped to death. So the trapper's son had a rifle. Uh, myself and the trapper and the mountie walked in, and then the, the the trapper stayed back a little bit, and we the mountie and I walked in, and just the way it was, there was a, a number of smaller trees in the area, and the moose could kind of get up against the trees but we could stay on the other side of the trees so we got in uh tried to taser it with the uh the probes that shoot out of the taser but those just deflected off the hair of the moose so that didn't work very well so we got in a little closer and the mountie was able to we were on the opposite side of trees that the moose couldn't get around because it had the snare on he stuck the taser in the moose's shoulder and the the moose was didn't fall down but it was certainly immobilized you could see it 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 groaned and it just sort of stood there vibrating and i was able to quickly uh get the snare uh sorry get my cutters out and cut the snare off the bottom jaw and then of course now the moose is a bit more mobile because it only has the snare on the one leg so it's not having its head held in one direction or the other and it can dance around in a large area so we backed off and we kind of looked at it and we were trying to decide what to do. So we tried to approach the moose a couple of times, but now with just the leg caught on a front leg, it would run at us, the snare would hold it, it would land with its front legs, spin around on its front legs, and then try and kick us with its, one of its hind hooves. And of course, these hind hooves are coming by right at head height, and you're standing in... Oh, belly button deep at least snow and when the they they have split hooves um i don't know people that know uh, uh moose or or even cows they have split hooves well when this moose spun around and went out to kick just the the stretching and everything of it kicking out the hoof would open up and then right when it got to the fullest extension the hoof would snap literally snap you'd hear this 
and it was right beside my head a couple of times when it snapped. <laughs> so I guess actually that's probably one of the other times that I was pretty scared. <laughs> so we tried to figure out what we were going to do. We, we figured out we had some rope. We made a, a slip knot and we cut a pole. And I could get in within a pole's length, at least so the hoof wasn't snapping by my head. Uh, it still tried to charge me and, and spun around, and thankfully the snare hold held, rather. Um, so I, we threw the rope out, and I, I moved the rope around with the pole so that it was under the moose's feet, and we waited till it got on the, stood in the loop of the snare, of the uh, rope, rather. I'd lift up and the trapper and the Mountie pulled on it. And we managed to get, finally, after messing around, it got out of uh, the rope three or four times. But we finally got it around one back leg. And we drew the leg across the moose. It lay down. And it was up against a tree. So, we again, we snuck in. We were on the opposite side of the trees. And uh, the Mountie came in and we said, okay, here we go. We better make this count. Gave it a, a shot with the taser. I managed to cut the snare, and we both launched in the other direction back to the snowmobile trail. Because, of course, at this point, there's nothing holding that moose back. It could uh, jump up and jump on us. And it uh, it worked out well. Uh, luckily, the moose didn't quite figure out what was going on, and it really was disoriented by being tasered. It lay there for a little bit. Then when it heard the, the snap of the snare getting cut, it did jump up but it just jumped up and stood there. It didn't run at us or anything. And of course it was on the other side of the trees. Um, still, you know, we were, while well, we were touching it, we were within inches of this moose. We ran back out of the way. It didn't chase us and just stood there for a while. And uh, we backed off and stood at the snowmobile trail for a little while. Thankfully the trapper's son had, uh, had, was, uh, uh, had enough forethought to go around and knock down all the other snares. The last thing we would have needed is for this moose that's now free to walk into another snare and get caught again. Um, we went back to the snowmobiles and sat down for a few minutes, and sure enough, the moose wandered off into the sunset. And uh, was a was a happy day for everybody. <laughs> it worked out very well. That concludes part one of Heather Avery's chat with Yukon Conservation Officer Dave Bakicha. He's got lots more stories, including one about how he snagged a poacher. So make sure you listen to part two of this episode coming out next week. That's it for this episode of Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. Please share this episode and leave us a review. It really helps. Subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our print magazine by going to northofordinary.com. While you're there, check out Yukon North of Ordinary merchandise. And for a full product line, visit the Bricks and Mortar store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street, across from City Hall. There's a great selection of clothing, hats, stickers, glassware, and more. Do you have something to say about this episode? We'd love to hear from you. Find us on social media at North of Ordinary. You can also contact me, Karen McCall, with feedback or story ideas. Editor at northofordinary.com is my email. Thanks to the whole team at North of Ordinary Media. Our podcast artwork is by art director Manu Kegenhoff. Our music is by Head Candy and tribeofnoise.com. Thanks for listening. We have another episode coming out soon. I hope you listen in. Thank you.